Good morning uh, to greet you in Jesus' name this morning. Certainly the circumstances in Haiti remind us that we live in a very fallen world. And um, things like this unfortunately take place at times. And certainly a reminder of of the uh, struggle of good and evil in the, in the world for sure. Turn with me to James 1 for a text this morning. I've been uh, somewhat pulling some text from the book of James the last while, and um, it's been somewhat of a thematic sort of a way of looking at this book. I have certainly not gone in any sort of order, and um, we are going back to chapter 1, two verses that I had wanted to speak on at some point, and we're going to do that today. Verse uh, 26 and 27 of James 1 reads like this. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widow in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. I've simply entitled the message, Defining Pure Religion, Part 1. I was going to make this all one sermon, and then I soon realized that that wasn't going to work. And it's probably going to be at least two and maybe three. But as I've mentioned before, as we as we looked at this book, when you look through the book of James, his letter here, um, a lot of what he deals with is very practical almost mundane things, you could say, that that are the essence of pure religion. And I thought, well, maybe it would be good to just define what religion is. And I was interested when I looked up the word religion here as used in the book of James, there's there's two Greek words that kind of are put together to, to form this word religion. So you have the first two letters, re, okay? Well, we have different words that that um, start out with that particular two letters. We have something like reimburse or remember or um, um, regenerate, whatever, different things like that. The, the, those two letters um, mean back or again, okay? So to go back or to do something again. The second part of this, the um, ligio, I guess is how you'd say it in Greek, means a tie or a connection. So if you, if you put those two things together, religion means that a person turns back to find a tie or connection, which if you think through it, that makes a bit of sense. As, as we are born into this world, a, a child, uh, an, an innocent child under the grace of God, we, we eventually come to a point where we have a decision we need to make. And that is, will I, will I cast my lot with God's people? Will I allow the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me from sin? Will I, will I take that route? Will I turn back to God? Or will I not choose that and I go my own way? So when you think of it that way, religion does make sense. It's a turning back to to uh, God when we realize that we are we are strayed from Him. Sometimes we hear the term, you know, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. 
And I understand what is meant by that. Uh, there's many religions in the world, right? I mean, anything can be called a religion. A quick check um, in, um, in Wikipedia revealed that there's something like 4,300 religions in the world. Well, most certainly there's many religions that are nothing about turning back to God. It's certainly about gods, but not really the true God. But in, in the Christian religion, in true religion, this is something about, um, I believe, well, let's put it this way. I believe that Christian religion is the outcome of a relationship with Jesus. I really don't believe that the two are, are against each other. I think the two complement each other very nicely. And I don't think that we need to necessarily um, shy away from the word religion necessarily unless it is not pure religion. And that's what James sets out to try to define. Now, these are some tenets, some things, some tests that we can uh, we can have here that we can test whether we have true religion or not. I had to think about this: is um, is all Christian religions? Let's get rid of all the the non-Christian religions. Would it be safe to say that all Christian religions are pure and true religions? Well, I, I don't think we have to debate that long. That um, we couldn't conclude that either, could we? One test that we could legitimately have comes in First uh, John 4, 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. That's a very simple test that we can have to know whether a, a religion is truly of God or not. So the next several messages, I want to extract these verses from James, some of these um, some of these tests that he has, and try to figure out what true, what pure religion looks like as as James defines it, and put it through these simple tests that he lays out here. So the first one I see is actually in verse twenty six. Um, I guess the subtitle for this for this message, if you want one, would be. Pure religion as defined as free of hypocrisy. Basically, in verse 26, what he's talking about is hypocrisy. Now, this seems like a very uh, like mundane subject, perhaps. But as I looked at it and I, and I thought about it and I read different scriptures, I realized that hypocrisy is a, is a very, um, it's an easy one to fall into. It's an easy trap for a religious person, a, a person that, that, wants to be religious to fall into, and we want to figure out why that is. So I have four four points this morning. I have the case of hypocrisy, the cause of hypocrisy, the curse of hypocrisy, and the cure of hypocrisy. So James just gives us a little illustration here in verse 26. He goes, you know, we have a man here that seems to be religious. Now you think about that a little bit. This man probably looks religious, and to the to the casual observer, and maybe even maybe even a little beyond, maybe not even just a casual observer, but to most people, he appears to be a religious person. He seems to be religious. There are things that he does that identifies him with religion. But he has a bit of a problem. It says, uh, James says, he's using a hypothetical illustration here, he says, but the man can't bridle his tongue. Now, we're not sure what what that unbridling was. Like, what part of his tongue could he not control? We don't know that. Uh, but 
whatever it was, he had a tongue problem. Perhaps he had a, a habit of using profanity uh, or untoward language when he was speaking. Uh, perhaps he uh, he had a problem with slander and evil speaking. James addresses that later in, in the book here. Um, perhaps he had a problem with twisting his stories up a little bit. We don't know. But he had a problem with his tongue. But whatever it was, the practices that were observed were vain because he had a deep problem in his life. He looked religious, but he had a problem that he, he could not deal with. And the greatest tragedy of the whole thing was that he not only deceived everyone else, he deceived himself. It said he deceived himself. And we call this hypocrisy, don't we? It's the act of looking and acting and promoting something that I really am not. And what I project for the public to see is not really who I am. Turn with me to Isaiah 1. We're going to look at a, at a um, illustration in the Old and the New Testament of, of people that found themselves in this very situation. If you turn to Isaiah 1... Uh, the, the call of Isaiah is very clearly laid out here um, as far as what he was going, the kind of people he would be dealing with. And we'll just read through the verses 10 to 20 here. And I won't comment much, but this is, this is uh, think about how hypocritical these people were living. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Get, give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Now just stop there a, a minute. Was uh, Isaiah writing to Sodom and Gomorrah? Oh, no, he wasn't, was he? He was writing to uh, he was writing to what were supposed to be the people of God, and this is this is the um, words he's using. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Saith the Lord, I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or he goats. When he, when ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you re, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to, de, to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be a scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And as I mentioned, I'm not going to comment here a lot. But what God does here is he's speaking to these people through the prophet. He's, he, he lays out all these wonderful things that they're doing that look good. They're, they're doing the sacrifices. They're observing the new moons and the, the appointed feasts and so on. But he said, they, they, I'm weary to bear them. That's what God says. I, I can hardly stand to watch it, he goes. 
And if you look down at verse 16 and 17, you find out why. All the time they're doing this, they're not seeking just judgment. They are not relieving the oppressed. They are falsely judging the fatherless and they're ignoring the widows. The, the things that God was very interested with them, along with, with their new moons and sacrifices and so on, they were ignoring, totally ignoring that. And God saw right through that, of course. Turn to Matthew 23 for the New Testament illustration, and, and you knew this one was coming, didn't you? A very, very familiar passage, and I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and then maybe a few other verses. Then Jesus, then spake Jesus to the multitude, to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe... That observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. just going to stop there and go over to verse 27 yet. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And we we left out a good part of that, but you get the gist, you know the story. The Pharisees had this problem of doing wonderful things and and actually going above and beyond in, in some other things. But the whole point of it was to be seen of men. And inwardly, God says you're, you're just like dead men's bones. Very, very unattractive, very unappealing. So... A New Testament and an Old Testament example of vain religion. All right, now let's move into the cause of hypocrisy. Why are there hypocrites? I had to think about that one for a while, and I and I, I'm not sure if I came up with a reason or not, but I'm going to I'm going to suggest that there's a couple of reasons. And uh, if you if you have anything to add to that, I'd be curious to hear what you have to say. Number one, I think hypocrites are made. Because there is a desire for approval that comes from good things, but it takes work to change the heart, all right? I shouldn't say it takes work. It takes Jesus to change the heart, doesn't it? And so there's something very appealing about authentic Christianity. I mean, would you not agree with that? If, if you think of a true, genuine Christian, and, and hopefully that's the description of us here today, but it really takes Christ to resist talking back to someone. When somebody raises your ire, uh, it really takes something beyond ourselves to resist that, doesn't it? It takes something beyond us to be genuinely happy. Have you ever met somebody that seemed happy, but you knew that they really weren't? And then perhaps you met somebody that they were happy and you knew they really were. And most likely the difference was is because they had Christ in their life. And we could go on and on. We, we like to be around people who have control of their spirit. We like to be around people that don't have 
questionable or bad habits. We like people that are unselfish, don't we? All these things are very appealing. But there's an interesting thing here. People that are engaged are, or can be described as what I just described to you also have other things that describe them as well. I don't know that I've ever met people who meet this description that I just laid out to you who were not regularly doing other very, uh, maybe you'd say rote things, maybe very habitual things. These people go to church on Sunday. They pray regularly. They like to read their Bibles. They dress in a way that they're recognized as Christians. And those things can be engaged in without any heart change. You can do any of those things and not and have a very corrupt heart. And that's exactly what the Pharisees engaged in. We have uh, an example of this in Acts, don't we? In, in Acts 2, maybe I'll just turn to that real quickly here because it's a very, a very good example, I think. If you look at Acts 2 here, in uh, verse, oh, the last part, the very last part of the, um, of the uh, chapter, it talks about that after this, th- this, the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost, that there was something very, very amazing happened. It said that fear came upon these souls, and signs and wonders were done in verse 43. And in verse 44 to 47, it talks about how that many of them sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men and every, as every man had need. And um, so we have this, this interesting thing that, that this indwelling of the Holy Spirit made these people so unselfish that they were like, I'm really not really interested in, in collecting this stuff anymore. We're going we're gonna to part it out to those who have need. Well, if you go to uh, verse um, the, la- the latter part of chapter 4, we have a man named Barnabas here. We know him as Barnabas. He was Joseph here. That he had a, a piece of property, apparently, and he sold it and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So that's that's the beginning of what we know about Barnabas. But in chapter 5, we have other people that, uh, another couple here, that decided they would do likewise. They they sold their property, sold it, well, it says a possession, Sure, we somehow we assume that's maybe property, but it was whatever it was, it was a possession that they had. But in verse 2 it says they kept back part of the price. All right, and we know the story. They go to the apostles, they lay it down, and they and they they suggest that that is the entirety of what they received for that possession. But it wasn't. And we and we know this unhappy story, how that they were immediately judged by God because of this hypocritical. Uh, thing that they did. But why did they do it? They did it because they wanted so badly, or they, I think they actually admired. I think they admired Barnabas for what he did. You know, what a man that he would sell this property and give everything he got from that property for the work of the church. And that was very admirable. And I believe they, they knew that. They knew that people admired Barnabas and they were like, we wouldn't mind having that too. So we'll try the same thing, except we don't quite have the 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 uh, gumption to give it all. We're going to lay a little portion of it back here because maybe they had a, I don't know, maybe they had to uh, fix their bathroom or something. You know, I don't know. But Peter said, you, you could have kept part of that. that. That would have been not dishonorable at all if you would have kept part of it. But they wanted honor that they didn't deserve, okay? And they decided to 
do this hypocritical thing, and it was to their destruction. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And Jesus says, I will have to say to those people, I don't know who you are. And again, if you look at what these people were engaging in, it was stuff that would have would have wild people, all right? Casting out devils and doing wonderful works, that, that stuff we enjoy seeing, it's like that's the wow factor. But to be doing things behind the scenes, to be controlling one's spirit, to, to have the bridle on his tongue, those are the weighty things that people don't understand the importance and it maybe doesn't bring the, the the wow factor from people. The other thing, as I as I thought of it, I think sometimes hypocrites are developed because of a um, of a um, uh, how do I want to say this? So there's an expectation, you know. Let's just use our our church as an example. There's an expectation of what we should act like dress like, drive like, just on and on. There's kind of an expectation. And I'm assuming I'm speaking for the for the crowd here, but we don't want to be too far out of those those norms. Okay, we wouldn't go way out here on on too far on either side of those norms because we realize that 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 would bring some consternation from our our fellow brothers and sisters, wouldn't it? And so we can live inside a normalcy a particular normalcy, and we can sit there and not have a changed heart. It, it, it just can happen because of our culture. Okay, we can we can develop this thing that will do what's expected, but it's really not who I am. If if I could do what I wanted to do, I would do this, but I know that would bring consternation, and I'm not willing to go there. So I'll just do what's expected, but my heart is is not there, or perhaps. We can, as Christians, be uh, moving along, and we do have a good heart. But the devil, with his wiles, trips us up. And we engage in something that we, we realize that this was not a good thing. And, and we realize that people would be so disappointed in us if they knew this. And the pride of our hearts does not allow us to confess or to ask for help or whatever it, it, the need may be. And so we're willing to live with a besetting sin rather than to humble ourselves and expose ourselves and, and ask for, for help in some way. And when we live in this way, it can have a very damaging relationship to our, to our, um, between us and God. And I think it will eventually even sever it. And so I can just resort to living a life of hypocrisy and and allow that whatever it is that has its grip on me to grip me tighter to a point where I could hardly well I know I'm in trouble but the tighter I get gripped the more I'm like I'm going to get out of this myself and I'll continue to look good but um underneath things are not good at all and I will just say that you and I both know that um 
we can fool man for a long, long time, can't we? We can, we can put on the right clothes and say the right words and so on and so on, but we can never fool God. We can't. We can't do that. And generally, even perceptive spiritual people will catch on. Well, let's move on to the, uh, the curse of hypocrisy. Why is hypocrisy such a, a blight to pure religion? It isn't pure religion. Why, why is it such a blight? Well, I mentioned the first one already. It, uh, self-deception. It says that this man deceived himself. You know, when I live in this state of a damaged relationship between God, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, that's going to eventually, that that relationship will not be severed until that problem is taken care of. Whatever that, whatever needs to be done to take care of that problem. So as long as that's that's there, there's going to be that that severance that between that good relationship that I should be experiencing with God. And we can go for years and years doing religious things, religious activities. We can seem to be religious, but we have a very corrupt heart. And somehow we're just satisfied to stay in that state. And I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but I know of individuals that that is exactly what is taking place in their life or has taken place. Um, I, I think of one particular person right now that carried a spirit of bitterness in his heart, resentment uh, toward various individuals. And yet he knew how to walk the line. He knew that. And because he knew how to walk the line just right, there was, there was very little for, um, there was very little help that could be given to that person because he knew how to do the dance. Even though there were people that knew his heart had a problem. It's very, very unfortunate. Number two, another curse of hypocrisy is it mars the testimony of the church of God. Many unbelievers today, many, are where they are today because they observed hypocrisy in the church as perhaps a youngster. Perhaps they knew a pastor, an uncle, or a cousin, or a father, or whatever, that they knew. They observed that hypocrisy in their lives, and it soured them. It soured them on religion. And it hardened their hearts. And in their minds, they're not going to have any part of that. I would just like to say this to this to this particular point. It's important for each of us to remember that the only place you will ever find a hypocrite is in the church. That's it. You won't find a hypocrite anywhere else. So as much as I hate to say this, It's probably a safe prediction to say that as long as the church is on this earth and we deal with what we deal with in our humanness, there's probably going to always be a percentage of hypocrites in our churches. And we should not allow that to be a killjoy or a discouragement to us. Let's not allow another person's poor example to stand in our way of a good relationship with God. Think about it this way. If we take that same scenario and we would say, you know, as as I think through this, I can think of some farmers that do just a terrible job. They they never get to their fields on time. They they just are not good farmers, all right? 
Now, how much sense would that make if I'd say, now, I'm not going to farm because I have observed this poor farmer over here, and I'm just not going to farm. Well, it doesn't make any sense at all. I, I can, I can, I can farm correctly despite him over there that is farming very, very poorly. Now, maybe that's not a completely good example, but I hope you get the point. Even though it's, it, it can be discouraging and it's unfortunate, whenever we see hypocrisy, and I'm not saying it should be ignored, that is no reason that you can't live well. That is no reason you can't apply the grace of God to your life and live far above that. And I would like to encourage you to do that. Number three, another curse of hypocrisy is that it can keep honest seekers from experiencing and knowing true religion. I don't know if you're still at Matthew or not, but uh, that is brought out very clearly in Matthew 23. That should have stayed there. But Jesus says in verse 15, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. Now, have you ever wondered exactly what that means? So these people are, they're, they're missionaries, right? And they go out and they, they make a proselyte, an Old Testament converted person, right? But he said, this person ends up being twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. I'm going to suggest to you that this is what I believe this is saying, and maybe I'm not right, but this is the only thing I could concoct out of that. So obviously, these Pharisees are going to convert this proselyte to their religion. And if this proselyte is any perceptive person at all, he's going to, he's going to say to himself, well, apparently true religion is that it doesn't matter, you know, that I sit at the auction and smoke cigarettes and play cards, as long as I show up to church on Sunday morning and um, and um, put on the right clothes and say the right words, that apparently is religion. All right? So they were teaching their proselytes a false religion. I, I recently listened to a sermon of a, of a man that that he came to Christ in a very roundabout way. He, uh, he was born a Catholic person and he, he, he became converted through a televangelist. But he, he said that he, that was his story. He, he literally was converted, found Christ through the, through watching a TV evangelist. So praise God for that. Um, you know, we, 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 we rejoice where we can with these things sometimes, those faulty as they are. But in his quest for finding true religion, he ended up for a time at a church where his testimony was that it was, it was a Pentecostal church, for whatever it's worth. So he said there was a lot of excitement on a Sunday morning, lots of lots of things happening and, and so on. But he said the unspoken rule was, the unspoken understanding was that it didn't matter what you did tomorrow. It just mattered that you showed up and waved your hands and made a lot of noise and got slain in the spirit, etc. on Sunday morning. Well, praise the Lord, he, he eventually saw through that sham. But perhaps some people don't. Perhaps that's where some people stop. And they say, well, that's true religion. 
Now, I don't mean to cast a shadow over that particular church group. Let's inspect our own. Are we teaching people that come to Christ what true religion really is here? I think sometimes that this is what is talked about in the Bible when it says you have a form of godliness, and that can be that can take on different forms, um, but you deny the power, and so thus the poor person that is that is converted, he's confused on what, on what pure religion is, and that's that's a travesty. Uh, perhaps there's more than that to this thing of making someone twofold more the child of hell, and I'd be I'd be curious if you have more insight on that. But that is that is kind of where my mind went on this thing. Let's move on. Number four, close on the heels of this problem uh, that we just mentioned, is that hypocrisy left to go to seed can spread to other believers. In Luke 12, 1, Jesus said this to the disciples. He said, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. All right? Well, we know what leaven does. Leaven just spreads. It just it just infiltrates everything. So, so how does how how could leaven, or how could this spread to other believers? Well, let's think through this a little bit. So, hypocrisy many times is is a little bit difficult to detect. It can be, but if it is observed and it is understood to be the the uh, the, the case in someone's life, and a blind eye is left to that. That's not necessarily dealt with in any way. We'll put it that way. Well, this can slowly spread to other people. And pretty soon people say, well, you know, a little sin in his life doesn't seem to matter. So a little sin in my life apparently doesn't either. And um, it can have a leavening effect on the body of believers. I personally believe that is why Ananias and Sapphira's sin was so swiftly dealt with. Um, I have a feeling that it could have been known what that piece of real estate perhaps brought. It could have been sold at a public auction. I'm, I'm just very hypothetical here, but perhaps other people in the church knew that that piece of property brought a hundred thousand, and Ananias and Sapphira only brought eighty, and cast at the, the apostles' feet. And what what would have they thought if uh, they would have they would have had to uh, you know now deal with this thing that here here's somebody in church that actually lied about what took place? Well, I don't know, but for some reason the 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 the, the judgment on those two people fell swiftly and surely, and I think that it was God's way of uh, quickly. Revealing to the church that this kind of activity was not at all acceptable. It says, right after this took place in Acts 5, it says, great fear came upon all the church because of that. Number five, another curse, hypocrisy observed can lead to a distorted understanding of what authentic yieldedness and brotherly deference is in a church body. Now that's Quite a wordy point, I understand that. But I, I know a person that closely observed another person in his life, that he was very closely 
attached to. And he had a lot of, he had a lot of respect for this particular person. But the day came when there was a deep-seated sin that was revealed in this person's life that had been there for years, years and years and years. And it so affected this, this observer, so disappointed him, that I would say he almost turned cynical. And his way of dealing with that observation and his, his, um, his disappointment with that was, according to the pastor that I was talking to about the situation, he decided that if I don't have a conviction on a thing, I won't do it. Because that means I'm a hypocrite. So, so what he was getting at is, if, if a body of believers decide they're going to do a thing a certain way, and we understand that in our settings, we do that. There's certain things we, we, we for the testimony and for the, our spiritual collective good, we do things this way. We decide we're going to do it this way. If I personally decide that that doesn't describe who I am, that's not the way I see it, I'm not going to do it. Because I'd be a hypocrite. Folks, that's not, that's not being a hypocrite. That's simply, that's simply being submissive and yielded to the body of believers. The Bible's full of this. The New Testament is full of this. Submit one to another. We have the, the, um, the, the example in Acts 15. When the, when the church was in this hullabaloo about circumcision and so on, and they finally got together and they said, no, you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. But we have this other issue, and that's this whole thing of eating meat offered to idols. We're going to ask that you don't do that too. All right? Well, there was, there was apparently some of that happening. Now, do you suppose that it was hypocritical for those people that were asked not to eat that meat offered to idols? Was that hypocritical of them to refrain from that? No, that wasn't hypocritical at all. It said it actually brought peace to the church. Now, now you think through that. This poor man that I gave in, in this illustration, he was literally disillusioned and, and, and came up with kind of a wrong... Uh, faulty thinking, we'll put it that way, because of this hypocrisy, blatant hypocrisy that he saw in another person's life. Thankfully, just the rest of the story, that particular person um, kind of found his feet again, and I don't think he's there in that particular place anymore, but, um, but it was a journey for him. Two more here. Number six, another curse of hypocrisy. Observed hypocrisy can lead to a contempt for specific religious practice by those observing. All right, so let me explain this. As I said in the beginning, there's a, there are things that we do as true Christians that you can do and not be a true Christian. All right? You can, you can come to church every Sunday morning and not be a Christian. Um, Jesus gave an example in Matthew 23, back in the same same chapter we were reading out of, in verse 23 of that, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe on mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Now, here's the punchline. These ought ye to have done... All right. There was nothing wrong with your tithing of your mint and anise and cumin. That was actually completely 
right. There was nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think if you go back to um, to um, the book of Leviticus, you even maybe even have some um, some instruction on that. All right, I, I might be wrong on that, but I think there is. But he says you shouldn't leave the other undone. So, in a twisted way. It could be that as people observed these Pharisees and they knew the hypocrisy, they said, I'm not going to tithe on mint and anise and cumin because I don't want to identify with these hypocrites. I don't want to do that. I'll just, I'll just, um, look at judgment, mercy, and faith. That's what I'm going to be interested in. Well, the fact of the matter is, if they were truly interested in judgment, mercy, and faith and they were pursuing that, it would probably lead them to tithe on their mint and anise and cumin. All right? You see how the you can do the one without the other, but you probably can't do with the judgment, mercy, and truth without that eking over into the, the tithing part of things. I also had to think of the uh of the religious man in um, Luke eighteen that was there praying, and he said, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I possess. Was that a bad thing? Was that bad for the man to Fast twice a week and give tithes of everything he possessed? Absolutely not. The problem was that he was proud of it. And he used this as some sort of a merit system to gain favor with God. The point that I want to make is godly people will routinely and habitually engage in certain practices and Christian disciplines that a hypocrite can do as well. And it, and it could even be that a truly um, a person that's truly interested in following God will make personal habits and develop personal convictions that even maybe exceed the bottom line. Okay, so now a person that that has observed hypocrisy, blatant hypocrisy, something like the, some of the illustrations I've given. They look at those practices and they say, no, no. That you become suspect. You become suspect, suspected of having dead men's bones if you live above the bottom bar. So my point is that in a way, when there's hypocrisy observed by people, it can actually give them a distaste for things that really aren't distasteful. But they end up being distasteful because of the uh, of the observation that these people have made. Well, the seventh curse of hypocrisy is very simple: eternal damnation. That's it. Jesus had this to say in Matthew twenty-four, and this is the parable of the unfaithful servant. Okay, so this is a little out of context, but this is how he sums it up. He says, the Lord of that unfaithful servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, in an hour when he is not aware of, and he shall cut him asunder. And where is he going to put him? Does anybody remember? Where do those, where will that unfaithful servant be cast? It says he will appoint his portion with the hypocrites. Alright? So what Jesus is saying there, this unfaithful servant who was obviously not doing the Lord's will, obvious. He said he's going to be put over here in the place where the hypocrites are. Like, it's worse to be a hypocrite than to be an obvious, in, in obviously doing infractions, doing things that are 
terrible. Being unfaithful. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think that's, that's totally self-explanatory. The, uh, the, uh, fate of a hypocrite is, is grim. Alright, the third part of the message, and I, and I know where the time is, this is real short. The cure for hypocrisy? It's very, very simple. You must be born again. That's it. I mean, it's a very simple message. Make the inside match the out. Or maybe even make the outside match the inside and be done with it. It's like, choose you this day whom you will serve. Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, I want you either hot or cold. This lukewarm business, I can't hack. And I really believe that that was basically hypocritical living. The psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. And I think that should be our prayer this morning. Search me, know my heart, and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the path everlasting.